In chapters 8 and 9, Matthew's been telling us a lot about Jesus' healing ministry. And in this morning's passage, we read of two more healings. Actually, they're the, the last two of ten miracles, a series of ten recorded in those chapters. If you remember back to last week, Jesus has just healed Jairus' daughter. And he's just healed, well, he's raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He's healed the woman with the flow of blood. But now in verse 27 of Matthew 9, two blind men follow him and they're calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. These blind men, they're like a lot of the people whom Jesus healed. They're outcasts again. Now, the the reason they're outcasts, there was a connection you made in Jewish society in those times. If somebody had a disability, you made the connection that that was because they were sinful, because they had done something wrong. You might remember, remember Glenn Hoddle, uh, when he was England, boss made a complete Horlicks, making a, a similar sort of connection, that people with disabilities have, have maybe done something wrong, uh, and he made that connection. It's one that we, we wouldn't at all make in our culture, but it was very prominent in, in the culture of Jesus' time. So these men are not only blind, but they're outcasts because they're regarded as, as sinful men. It's always interesting to see what people call Jesus when they approach him. These guys called him son of David. Now that's hugely significant. Uh, Son of David might be a very vague term to us, but it's very, very concrete in the culture of Jesus' time. For God's people, they were waiting for the son of David. Hundreds of years before, God had promised King David a king in Israel, that one day a descendant of his would become king of a, a, a throne. He would sit on a throne. He'd be king on, in an empire that would last forever. This would be the golden age of Israel. So all of God's people were waiting for the son of David to arrive. People had been looking out for him for, for centuries now. And it's ironic, I think, that the first people who see the son of David, when he arrives, are two blind men. These men, they fumble their way along the roadside after Jesus. They're calling out son of David to him. And their hearts must have been heaving with anticipation. You see, they wondered whether the kingdom was really coming. They'd heard about Jesus preaching. They'd heard about the healing miracles that he had done. And along with every blind person in Israel, they're hoping that he's the real deal. Because one of the signs that the son of David's arrived and that the kingdom of God has arrived is that the blind are given their sight. These men know that if Jesus is the real deal, if he really is coming to establish God's kingdom, then they could expect to be reading the late edition of the paper later that day. The stakes are high for these men. Whenever they finally catch up with Jesus, they follow him into the house where he's staying, and and Jesus says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, these men, 
clearly have some sort of faith in Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't have called out to him. They wouldn't have followed him. But Jesus is giving them an opportunity to, to declare their faith directly. I'm sure you've noticed that pattern as we have gone through these last couple of chapters. Faith is so important in these healing situations. The leper came to Jesus in faith. He said, if you're willing, you can heal me. Do you remember the centurion's faith? So great that it astonished Jesus. We read he hadn't seen the like of it in Israel. Whenever the paralytic's friends brought him to Jesus, it's interesting Jesus healed the paralytic on account of his friend's faith. We read there. And last week we saw again of uh, the faith of Jairus and of the bleeding woman. Matthew makes it really very clear in his gospel accounts. Faith in Jesus makes all the difference in the world. Folks, faith in Jesus still makes all the difference in the world. Faith in Jesus makes the difference between whether we will ultimately perish on the one hand or have eternal life on the other. Isn't that what the the most famous verse of all tells us? God so loved the world that he gave his own son that whoever believed in him or has faith in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Who is it that doesn't perish? It's the person who has faith in Jesus. Who is it who has eternal life? It's the person who has faith in Jesus. The question that Jesus asks these blind men here is the same question that that Jesus always poses to, to any person who comes before him. Do you believe? Do you believe that I'm able to forgive your sins? Do you believe that I can give you a new life? Believing in Jesus makes all the difference in the world. Wonderfully, these two blind men do believe. Jesus says to them, according to your faith, it'll be done to you. That's another line that's very like what he said to the woman with the flow of blood last week. To her, he said, your faith has healed you. Do you remember we thought about this last week? It wasn't the strength of her faith or or the strength of the blind man's faith now that brought them the healing. It's the object It's because they put their faith in the right place or or in the right person that, that their faith was effective and healed them. Their faith was justified. It turned out to be well founded. And faith in Jesus always is. I want you to notice as well how Jesus chooses to heal these blind men. He touched them. Looking back over these last couple of chapters, we see that the touching people plays a very important role in many of Jesus' healings. Last week, he, we learned he, he took Jairus' daughter by the hand and lifted her from her deathbed. In a less dramatic way, we know that he touched Peter's mother-in-law. At the very beginning of chapter 8, he did something very controversial when he touched 
a leper who probably hadn't been touched, hadn't felt a human touch in years. And now he's touching these, these tragic characters, these, uh, these outcasts, these blind men. Now, Jesus touched all of those people despite the fact that he can heal without touching. Matthew makes that very clear to us. He heals from a distance when he heals this centurion's servant. He doesn't even bother going to the house because he can, he can heal by just speaking the word. So Jesus doesn't need to touch people to heal them. And yet, time and time again, it's made very explicit that Jesus chooses to do this. He comes close. He identifies with people and he touches them. Jesus' insistence on the regular use of touch, I think, is something very important to say to any of us who want to minister in the name and in the way of Jesus Christ. We can't reach people for Jesus if we're not willing to go to them, to connect with them, to to be intimately close to them. Life with Jesus, we discover, it's a contact sport. It's not a life that we move through evading people and and keeping them at arm's length. It's a life that throws us in, into close proximity with other people. We're supposed to connect deeply with one another and with people who don't yet know Jesus. I've been really encouraged by the willingness of God's people here to do just that. I I grew up in a church where from time to time you got the impression that the minister didn't like the buzz that there was before a morning service because we should be silent as we prepare to meet with a holy God. I think there's there's a a grain of, of truth in that and an important thing that we must bear in mind. Personally, I get a huge buzz from, from the level of connection that there is both before our services and as we meet for, for coffee afterwards, quite often we can't get people to go home at the end of our morning and our evening service. Friends, I think that's brilliant. That's, that's where we've been called to. That's the kind of fellowship we should be sharing as God's people. And I'm also encouraged when I see how how that willingness to connect with other people is taken outside of our own community. I've seen it at a community carol service. I've seen it at a a fun day. I've seen it as you go into your, your workplaces and your neighborhoods. We're beginning to understand that this life that Jesus calls us to is one of connection with other people. For too long... The church has been a place where we have hidden from one another in our pews. And we've hidden from the world outside between heavy bolted wooden doors and high locked gates. It's not the way of Jesus. As we learn to follow him, we learn to be people who connect, who come close enough to one another and to others to touch As soon as Jesus touched these two blind men, they were healed. And 
And we notice here that he warned them sternly, see to it that no one knows about this. There's a reason for that. And it's quite simple. These men are discovering that Jesus is the Messiah. And for everybody in the culture, they think the Messiah is going to be a military leader who's going to kick out the Romans. If word gets out and if the public expectation is that Jesus is to be that kind of Messiah, then this is going to get in the way of Jesus' true mission in the world. What's Jesus' true mission? Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. Jesus is heading already for the cross. He knows that, and nothing must distract him from that. So Jesus doesn't want to be caught up in the military associations of messiahship, and that's why he tells these men to keep it to themselves. They don't do a very good job of, of obeying Jesus. Um, it seems like it was almost a good strategy for getting the word out, you know, reverse psychology. Guys, keep this to yourselves. And of course, the, the, word, the word goes out through the community. It seems to me that you just can't stop this kind of message from getting out. You know, there's no sense here that these these blind men who have been healed are, are judged because the, the word goes out. It's just a fact of life. When the word's good enough, you can't keep it to yourself. As we move on from, from these two blind men, it's, it's very clear to us that their healing here is a symbol for the, the work of the gospel. Those who were blind receive their sight. Last week we said that there are people sitting in church week by week who have already been raised from the dead by Jesus, spiritually dead, now they're alive. Well, in the same way the biblical image of, of seeing, uh, of a finding our sight holds true, those who were blind now see. As they've come face to face with Jesus, they suddenly see God in him. They suddenly can see their way in the world uh, folks, that's something we all need. We need our eyes to be opened. We need to see Jesus for who he is. And we need to walk in the ways that he shows us. We'll deal very much more quickly with the healing of these, uh, demon, this demon-possessed man now. Look at verses 32 and 33. A demon-possessed man who could not talk, was brought to Jesus. Now, we know already that Jesus has power over Satan and over demon possession because we've already seen him heal the, the two demon-possessed men back in chapter 8. So we're not surprised here when Matthew tells us the demon was driven out and the man who was mute spoke. The rest of Matthew's account actually doesn't tell us much more about, about the man who's been healed. The focus falls instead on the audience. It falls on a crowd who are watching, and it falls on the Pharisees. The crowd, we're told, they were amazed. And they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Actually, what's happening here is that the crowd are beginning to see what the blind men saw before them. There's something going on here, the like of which we don't normally see. The Messiah is coming and he's bringing his kingdom with him. The Pharisees, they weren't so sure. Now, it's interesting. Notice that they recognize Jesus' power, all right. There's no discussion here. 
that they saw a bona fide uh, healing in their, in their presence. A, a man who was blind received his sight and a, a mute demon-possessed man has talked. There's no discussion of that. The question, though, is where does Jesus' power come from? Rather than giving glory to God as the crowd did, the Pharisees say that Jesus is in league with the devil. It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. There's nothing naive about God's word here, folks. Jesus does these wonderful, wonderful things. And in a naive Disneyland kind of world, you'd imagine that everyone would respond positively to what he does. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible tells us instead that Jesus always divided the community who stood before him. We're told that about Jesus as soon as he's born. Whenever he's born, we have wise men who'll travel a long, long way to come and worship him. And at the, at the very same time, we have Herod sitting three miles up the road, plotting how he's going to kill this new baby. The world's divided in two by Jesus Christ. And it's still the same today. There are people who recognize Jesus for who he, who he is and who worship him. And there are others who would rather see Jesus dead than recognize him as Lord of their lives. Jesus divides the world in two. People fall on one side of that divide or the other. And it's worth reflecting from time to time where we fall in relationship to Jesus Christ. Which side are we on? Let's finish looking together at the last few verses of chapter 9. In verse 35, Matthew summarizes the whole of Jesus' ministry. He says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. I hope that understanding of what Jesus actually did, this is Jesus' job description. This is what Jesus did in his public ministry, what he spent three years doing. It's right here. It's almost an exact repeat, actually, of a, an opening summary that Matthew gave in chapter 4, verse 23. It's like a bookend summarizing everything that's happened in between. Now, this summary confirms something that, that we really need to understand. Jesus' healing ministry which has been really important in this last few weeks, uh, in chapters 8 and 9, it's not the center of Jesus' ministry. Look carefully at the order that Matthew gives. He says that Jesus taught, that he preached the good news of the kingdom, and that he healed every disease and sickness. If you take the, the incidents of healing that have been described here, and if you take them and read Matthew's gospel right across the board, you'll discover that healing, which is very prominent here, on balance is secondary compared to the teaching ministry of Jesus and his demonstration that the kingdom of God has arrived in people's midst. 
If we want to be faithful followers of Jesus, we need to learn from the patterns of his own ministry. As a church, we keep prioritizing the the sharing of the good news of the kingdom of God. But at the same time, we do look for opportunities to demonstrate the reality of the kingdom. We look for those ways in which we can bring healing to the world around us and to people whom God has given us. In verse 36, Matthew gives us a wonderful insight into the heart of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Why does Jesus feel sorry for the crowds? It's because although he's been going around healing and he knows he can bring healing at any point in time to anyone he chooses, he knows that they have bigger problems than their blindness and their muteness and their leprosy. He knows that their lives are hollow, that their existence is meaningless, that they are dead to the life of God. That's why Jesus feels pity for them. It's because they don't live in the kingdom of God. I wonder what we see when we look at people around us. Yesterday afternoon, a lot of us were out shopping somewhere, maybe here in Ballyhackamore or in the city center or Conswater or Forestside. What do you see when you're in a crowd of people? Are we learning to look past the surface On the surface, we see people, some of whom are wealthy and some of whom aren't, some of whom are beautiful and some of whom aren't, some of whom are healthy and some of whom aren't. Are we learning to see beyond that, to see see people as Jesus sees them? Jesus sees this crowd and he doesn't make any distinction on the grounds of wealth, health, or beauty. He, He sees them as people who are lost, sheep without a shepherd, I wonder, can we see that? And it's in this context where there are so many sheep without a shepherd that Jesus goes on to say, the harvest is plentiful. He's saying, listen, there are loads of people around us who aren't yet living life in the kingdom of God, who aren't yet following me as you fellas are learning to do. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the harvest field. There's a major transition happening here in Matthew's gospel. Up until now, everything has been about Jesus. What he taught and what he did. But now Jesus is saying, right, fellas, join me. You're going to join me and learn how to do the same work that I'm doing He wants to teach them to to see these people and to have the compassion of a shepherd for them. He's calling them to join him and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We're finished for this morning. We've actually covered three slightly different uh, chunks here in, in Matthew's gospel. But there is nobody here this morning who 
who sits outside of the, the reach and the challenge of, of this part of God's word. For some of us, we stand before Jesus this morning and, and Jesus presents us with the same question which he asked the blind men. He says, do you believe? Do you believe that I'm able to do this for you, to heal you? To heal you in that fundamental sense of forgiving your sin and making your life new. For many of us this morning, that's the challenge of this passage. The question of Jesus, do you believe? And for some of us who do believe, Jesus begins to call us here to share in his ministry. Tells us about a harvest that's great. The harvest's still great today, friends. And in in the next chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus is going to train his disciples for the work of going out into that harvest. For those of us who do know and love Jesus, the challenge of this passage is, is his invitation to come and to join him and to go out into the harvest. Next week, we're going to enroll into a class with Jesus. A class where Jesus is going to teach us how to reach the world for him. We listen in on his evangelism training course in in Matthew chapter 10. Are you ready? Are you ready to join and to be a harvester with Christ? Let's pray.